We live in a contested space. We live in a contested space, and it's been this way for a long time. Uh, before humanity fell, in Genesis 3, the devil fell. The devil's a created being, an angel which God made, but he didn't want to just be an angel. He wanted to be God. Uh, he wanted to be in the center, so he turned on God. Um, and when this happened, we're not really sure. Uh, what we do know is uh, from Scripture is that the devil is the supremely dark one. Uh, and he wasn't just happy doing it on his own. He went on a recruitment drive. Scripture seems to suggest that a third of the angels in heaven went with him. Uh, and here's the bottom line, folks. He wasn't going to leave everyone else alone. That's, that's just not how he rolls. He, uh, he slithers into the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve um, to recruit some humans to his, uh, to his side. Uh, he wants people to join him to align with him, uh, not because he has anything good in mind. He doesn't have anything good in mind. The only things he has in mind is to wreck stuff. That's, that's basically how he rolls. Uh, he wants people to turn against God. Anything uh, good that God's created, he just wants to wreck it, which is why when you, you look into the world, there's a whole bunch of good things that just get wrecked. <laughs> All right? That's how evil works. It's how the devil works. Um, and, and it's no surprise to us that humanity's kind of in his sights, right? Because humanity, we know from Genesis chapter 1, is, is the pinnacle of God's creation, the pinnacle of the goodness that God created. And so he comes into the Garden of Eden, he talks with Eve, and uh, Adam does nothing, uh, and they agree with him. They think he's got some good ideas. And uh, he's got some ideas that would suit them down to the ground. And so they say, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll go with that. His arguments win the day and the allegiance of humanity shifts uh, to darkness uh, in that moment. And that day was a very, very, very dark day. Uh, every uh, news feed that you look at, every nightly news bulletin that you watch... Has, flow, has flowed out of that dark day. It was a dark day because humanity became disconnected from God himself. Darkness fell on that day, it descended, and it descended over everything. The very next chapter, we've got a family dispute that ends up in murder, literal murder, and it just gets worse from there. The start of this darkness was separation from God, and then it spread to everything else. Everything bad that you see, every shooting in central Queensland that's a dispute over a border of a property, every breakdown in a church, it all comes from that day, that dark, dark day. And you need to stop and, and, and think about the reality of that because that day... Uh, you would expect to have basically been a pitch black day. <laughs> Put your hand in front of your face, you can't see it kind of black day. But there's a little flicker of light in the darkness on that day, and it, it's in Genesis 3.15. There's a promise that one day someone's going to be born of a woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And, and you know, in that moment, God said this, and you've got to hear this. He said, I'm going to contest the darkness. I'm going to contest the darkness. Do you hear me? This is massive. And the reason why it's massive is because God had lots and lots of opportunities to walk away and not contest it. There was no rule that said that God had to contest the darkness. That was God's choice to contest 
the darkness. He could have walked away and just left it uncontested. Just let it go. These people got themselves into this mess. Well, just let it go. And he wouldn't have been evil for walking away. He wouldn't have been negligent. No one could have accused him of wrongdoing. But here's the thing. He, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't. And, and we could just be in rapturous applause right now, couldn't we? That he didn't? Who's with me on that? Is that? That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing to be in a world where light exists. And the reason why light exists is because God is still in it. And so we learn from the biblical story that, that he would be the one that would send his own son to contest the darkness, to contest it. The one who dwells in unapproachable light sends his own son to take on human flesh and be the light of the world. It's amazing. Uh, this is the guy that we're looking at in uh, John. This is the God that we're looking at in, in John. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to open that up. We're going to read the next section in John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. As he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I just kicked straight into a philosophical conversation. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. This is even worse, kids, than your mum licking her fingers and making your hair go right. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Here's where we're going to start today. We're just going to look at darkness for a moment. Verses 1 to 2, have a look at them there. What's the darkness that's going on here? Uh, this sounds really straightforward. There's an actual man there, and he's been blind since he was born. And do you know this man is in the dark? And he's been in the dark his whole life, um, since birth. He's never, ever seen. In a physical sense, his life is characterized by darkness. And this man is going to be a powerful metaphor which Jesus uses to teach a very real spiritual truth that the world is in the dark. We're all separated and in the dark from, from, separated from God and in the dark from the beginning of our lives. But before we kind of move into that too quickly, I want to just hang with the blind guy for a moment. And the reason why I want to hang with the blind guy for a moment is because Jesus does, right? I want you to look at verse 1. Who noticed the blind guy? Jesus did. Jesus, Jesus noticed the blind guy. You know, now, <laughs> Jesus is going to teach something really powerful through what he's going to do with the blind guy. Um, but you just need to know that the man was not superfluous to Jesus' mission. You know, sometimes uh, you can get a sense like Jesus is up to something and he's going to say something really significant immediately after this and you just go, oh, he's just doing it to the blind guy to get to his point. And it's like, no, the blind guy is the point as well. They're both the point. Um, and you know sometimes I think for us we can think that Jesus would walk right by us and not notice us 
I've felt that sometimes. It's like, I think sometimes I can get in a place and it's like, I think he'd probably just walk past. And it's an interesting question as I was prepping this. Uh, do you think Jesus would stop for you? Would he notice you and, and stop for you? Or would he have better things to do? You know, he's got so many big ticket items going on, so many bigger fish to fry that he wouldn't notice you. Uh, and, and I think this is incredibly precious that here we've got the incarnate in the flesh Son of God, the light of the world, so much resting on his shoulders, walking inexorably toward his crucifixion, and he notices a blind guy from birth. And you know that? That gives me some hope, right? And I trust that it gives you some hope because you just need to know if that's what he's up to, that's actually consistent with his whole character and he notices you in every single moment. And you don't have to doubt that. You don't have to question that. Um, he wasn't a number to Jesus. And you need to know that you're not a number to him either. And you might be sitting there, some of you may be going, oh, Pete's probably stretching a little bit too much. I'm not sure that you can get all of that out of the first verse. But do you know if you go across um, to John 9, verse 35, what happens after this story is there's this debate about who Jesus is. And then the religious leaders get in and they're religious. And that's usually what religion does. It just wrecks stuff, right? And, and they get in and they start getting involved with it. And in the end, the guy gets kicked out of the synagogue. Right? It gets out, ousted from the synagogue. And in John 9, verse 35, we, uh, we find out that Jesus went and found him. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, he said, dot, dot, dot. Isn't that amazing? It wasn't just about his point. It wasn't just about the next couple of verses after this bit. Uh, Jesus was into him as well. And uh, when he was in trouble, when he got kicked out, uh, Jesus went and found him and you just need to know Jesus doesn't hang you out to dry <laughs> for some bigger task for some bigger purpose you aren't a means to a ministry end do you hear me you're just not uh, it's always win-win for Jesus you win and his plans and purposes win that's how it always works the second thing we actually see in these first two verses um, in terms of the darkness, it's a pretty classic human thing. You can see it in verse 2, this automatic question that the uh, disciples have, uh, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And you just seem to know back in the day, there was a really, really tight connection between specific sin and suffering. Here's a quote from one of the rabbis. There is no death without sin, and there is no suffering without iniquity. They had direct connections between sin and suffering, but you can see what the problem is here, right? Like if there's a really tight connection between sin and suffering and he's been blind since birth, that's why they're asking the question, what did his parents do? Maybe they did something and he ended up with this bad thing happening to him. And what I just nailed down a, uh, a few principles when it comes to, uh, to suffering for us today. Here's, here's the first one. Uh, this is really clear from the fall in Genesis 3 that all suffering is a result of sin. If sin didn't come into the world, there wouldn't be any suffering. Second thing, suffering can be the result of specific sin, right? This is absolutely true. This is uh, the New Testament teaches uh, that people reap what they sow. And the reality is if you engage in a habitual sinful lifestyle, you'll end up suffering. <laughs> That's how it always works. 
In fact, you could argue that every single sin, there's some kind of suffering for someone else or for you. Um, consequences for sin are an example of suffering that is the result of a specific sin, but suffering is not necessarily the result of specific sin. It's not mathematical. There may be some explainable reasons for this, but you just need to know it's a dark world and darkness comes at you. It really does. Um, and unfortunately, this tight connection between sin and suffering, it'd be nice to just go, wow, that was, that was bad, right? They, and I'm glad that we've progressed further than that, right? And I'm, I'm not sure we always have. <laughs> we, we can still have some tight connections between uh, sin and suffering. And, and a bit like these statements up here, like there, there can be a kind of connection sometimes, but sometimes we can make it really mechanical and and quite a direct connection. So let me give you a few things that I've heard or seen where this connection's really mechanical and wooden. Here's the first one. I've spoken to a guy who's had Christians say to him, you're physically ill because you have some unconfessed sin in your life. Now, I don't know what you think about that. Like, do I think it's theoretically possible that that could be the case? Yes. <laughs> Is it the case in every, every case? No. Do I know when it's the case? No. <laughs> Is, do you get my point? It's like theoretically possible, but they, they, they just took it even further and they just went, this is what it is. This, this is your problem unless you confess it. And he's like, I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what it is. So this is an example of just that, that hard kind of connection. Here's, here's another one. Uh, I've seen this one around the place, believing you have to say positive words all the time, otherwise good things won't happen. That, that's out there. That, that's kind of a really hard kind of connection. Now, is, is it good to say good things? Yeah, it is. It's really good. And we should say lots of good things. But if, if, you, if you really, really push that really hard and you have a wooden direct connection between what you say and what happens around you, it's like all of a sudden we're in error at that point. Here's another one that happens, and, and I'd, I'm sympathetic to these things. I'm not putting these up as big things to criticise. It's just like there, there might be something in it that's helpful, but it's, it's being pushed uh, in a wooden kind of way, similar to what the disciples were doing. I faithfully served God for so long. Why is he letting this happen to me? We can ask that question. Um, you see the connection there between behaviour and, and good things happening. Uh, here's another one. My day went badly today because I didn't read the Bible and pray at the start. All right? Yeah, reading the Bible and praying is a good thing to do, and it? it might help you to have a good day, and it might get your head in the right frame. Um, but you can see the superstitious kind of vibe here where it's like I, I didn't do something, so there's a wooden connection to behavior and and here's one that still gets thrown around sometimes is you aren't healed because you don't have enough faith um now the issue as i've been saying is not that there isn't some truth in these statements i mean you can probably find some element of truth somewhere in each of these statements the issue though uh, i have is is twofold with these the first one is very clear the 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 direct connection um, the mechanical connection between behaviour and, and good outcomes. Uh, the other um, issue that I have 
with it is, is a little bit more kind of hidden, and it's this one. Uh, how do you repel darkness? Now, in each of these, do you know how you repel darkness? By behaviour. That's how you repel darkness. You be a good person. I mean, you can see that, um, you can see that with the, the disciples' question. You know, how do you stop darkness from coming on top of you? Well, the way that you stop darkness from coming upon you is by not engaging with darkness yourself. And that's partially true. There are places where that works. But it's actually not the ultimate answer. And, um, you know, darkness isn't ultimately repelled by human effort. I want you to hear that. It just isn't. Darkness is repelled by the person of Jesus. That's how darkness is repelled. Uh, and you'll notice here in this story that Jesus doesn't even have this philosophical conversation with them. Uh, you can see it in, uh, in what he says in verse 2 there. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, this is, um, this is interesting, right? Because you could get, if you know about Reformed theology... And if you don't, it's okay, just, just chill out and just enjoy the next couple of minutes. If you know about Reformed theology, you could get all Reformed heavy at this point, right? And you could say that God inflicted blindness on this man for this very moment when Jesus would come along and heal him to make this teaching point. Uh, but I want to say to you that uh, the Greek text, what the New Testament was originally written in, doesn't really let you do that at this point. Uh, the phrase, but that, the, could be read as a purpose statement that God's inflicted this blindness on this man for a particular teaching point. Uh, and honestly, if you want to have a conversation about that afterwards, I'm happy to have that one with you. But that's actually not what's going on here in the Greek text. The way that you need to understand this part is you need to understand it in a more of a result kind of a way. And Jesus is saying, don't focus on why the man was blind, focus on what I'm about to do. Focus on what I'm about to do. It isn't a focus on past reasons. That's, what it, that, that's what's going on here. Um, it isn't a focus on past reasons, but Jesus' mighty works. And, and the message actually captures this meaning of the Greek really, really well. Listen to this. This is John 9 verse 3. Uh, in, in, um, in the message, Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. You see what he's doing? He's saying, stop apportioning blame, all right, and look instead to the one who can roll darkness back, the physical darkness of this man's blindness. And it's no surprise to us that Jesus rolls straight into a section after this where he says, I'm the light of the world, right? Because he's, he's going to roll the darkness back in this man and Jesus' rolling of the darkness back in this man's physicality is going to be a metaphor for Jesus rolling the darkness back in humanity. Have a look at verse 4 to 5 in your Bible here. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. You're hearing Jesus and urgency there, right? And what he's talking about is he's talking about his time on earth. There's things that the Father actually has, him to get, has for him to get done and he needs to get those done. 
Um, while he's present in the world, it's daytime. And when he dies on the cross, it's going to be nighttime. <laughs> All right, that's what he's talking about here. And you can see that in a physical sense in the story of the crucifixion in Matthew 27, that there was darkness over the land um, until the ninth hour, from the, the sixth hour to the ninth hour. It was pretty dark between Friday and Sunday morning. Um, if you're one of the disciples, it was dark. It looked like everything was lost uh, from the perspective, perspective of the disciples. And I think this is what Jesus is pointing to. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Have you ever had one of those moments at home where uh, you're sitting... At Highfields, they seem to happen around dinner time. That's when the power goes out, if it's going to go out. Have you ever had one of those moments where the lights just go out for a second? And everyone just goes, like that floor, you know, is it about to go out permanently? You go and rush for the torches and get yourself ready for that. Well, you know, historically, that's what Jesus' death on the cross was like. It was this blip for a moment where it went dark. The three days when Jesus was in the grave were a blip. They were dark. But the interesting thing was that Jesus actually flagged with his people how you handle the darkness when you get there. And in particular, that kind of darkness if you move forward a few chapters you actually read this section in John where Jesus says something similar to what we're seeing here in John chapter 9 he's saying it this time to uh to people who are listening to him who are following him here it is here uh, Jesus said to them the light is among you for a little while walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What's Jesus saying there? Um, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, darkness does overtake you when he gets crucified on the cross if you don't have the light. It's very straightforward. I, uh, I remember years ago as a teenager going on a uh, preacher's kids camp. They got all the preacher's kids together and uh, they're a unique bunch, preacher's kids. And um, I remember sitting in a, um, in a group at a, this was so funny, in a group at a uh, drug rehab centre and we all kind of shared our story and uh, two of us were preacher's kids and we shared our story and all the addicts sat there or the former addicts sat there and they said, we're so glad that we were preacher's kids, <laughs> uh, which is very funny. We just got a, just got a laugh at that. Um, I mean, it was wonderful to see what the Lord did, but we went away in this preacher's kids uh, camp and uh, part of the, uh, the gig on this camp was we were going to go and play Spotlight. And uh, we had to walk to where Spotlight was. It was like this tall kind of pine tree uh, forest. And we had to get through this paddock that had a whole bunch of cows in it. And there were basically two torches and the group was spread out. And there was a torch way down the front and there was one right at the back. And I was in the middle. And it was really dark <laughs> because I wasn't near the, the light. And uh, it was freaky, right, because I'm in the dark and, and then I can just hear this herd of cattle starting to run and couldn't see anything. And I'm just going, I'm just going to walk up. I'm going to walk around the rim of this dam because I could see enough to see that. And I get up there and literally there's this cow, like I walked a little bit and then there's this cow like a metre in front of me because you couldn't see it. And it gets startled and I get startled and we both run a bit. Um, and in the end, I just went, this is, I, I'm not doing this, right? There were scotch thistles the whole way along. They're about knee-high, these big things, and you're just walking into them all the time and getting needles in your legs. I was going, I'm not doing this. So I, 
I ran. I didn't know what the ground was like because you couldn't see. just ran as hard as I could. It's like I've just got to get up there near the light. And this would be my appeal to all of us today is just to get near the light. Believe in the light. Rest in the light. Trust in the light. If you're here today and you don't trust in Jesus or you haven't been trusting in Jesus for a while, don't stay in the darkness because it will, it will overcome you. And this is, Jesus is saying this to his, his followers that in the days where he is going to be dead in the grave, there's hope for them even in that. If they straight away, like right now, trust in him, they'll get close to the light and they'll become sons of light. And, and as a son and a daughter of light, you get really shining. <laughs> you get really bright. You actually have light. And, and that's why Jesus says stuff like this, right? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we, you know, as we work our way through the, the biblical narrative, the biblical story, we see this idea gathering momentum, all right? Uh, because the Spirit comes, right? After Jesus goes back and, and, and the Spirit is Jesus living inside of us and he makes us bright and, and, and the Spirit continues this work of Jesus once he is gone. That's why if you read the book of Acts, Acts is written by the same guy who wrote Luke, and he starts in Acts with the story of the ascension, Jesus going back to heaven, and then the Spirit comes because what the Spirit's doing is continuing the work of Jesus. He's continuing that work. So I want you to hear me on this. Now, if the light of the world takes on human flesh and you believe in him and you trust in him, and his spirit takes up residence in you. And you carry the light wherever you go. That makes you a torch. It makes you a torch. You with me? This is really cool. Because God's called you to be a torch. A really good torch. You don't look that excited. I'm excited about this. Have a look at verse 6 to 7. Let's wrap this up, this story up. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the end of the story. The, the dude gets healed. It's amazing. It's different to the way that he healed other blind people. It seems like there's some kind of purpose to it. We don't really know what it is. But I've got a margin for Jesus just to do something differently because he wants to. All right? I, I just think he can do that. Um, but there's one thread in all of this in these last few verses which I want to highlight. And also it pops up a little bit earlier in this passage and I'll put it on the screen and hopefully that'll give you a bit of a hint. We must work the works of him who sent me. He said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went. This, you just need to know, this is a big one in John. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about the word sent. It's interesting, right? So here's Jesus heals a man's eyes with this muddy, salivary mix. And we don't know what that means. 
But John wants you to notice that Siloam means sent. So, so to him, the sent thing is really, really important. And if you actually track back, and we haven't talked heaps about this in the sermons on John. If you track back through John, you just see this idea of being sent all over the place. John the Baptist was a sent one. That's in John 1 verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And what we actually see from chapter 1 right through to chapter 9 is it just pops up all the time. Go home and, and, and look it up. Like type in sent in, in an online concordance and search John chapter 1 to John chapter 9 and see how many times the word sent shows up. I mean, you only have to go back one chapter and there's five references to it in John chapter 8. You ready? Verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the, fa- and the Father who sent me. Verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Verse 26. I have much to say to you say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. John 8 verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. John 8 verse 42, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Like it just, seriously, go home and look up the word sent in the gospel of John and you will see it all over the place. What has the father done? The father sent the son to dispel the darkness to contest it. He's on a mission to do that, which includes the physical healing of this blind man. Jesus was sent to contest the darkness. But I want you to notice something, and you can see it in this text here, is the sentness of Jesus doesn't just stop with him. It actually includes us as well. Have a look up there. Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. What's Jesus saying? We're all in it. The Father sent me, but you guys are helping me. We're all, we're all kind of sent. Um, he comes to uh, the blind man and puts the mud on his eyes, and then he sends him. He sends him to Siloam. That's what he does. And just so we mi- don't miss it, John tells us what Siloam means. So the guy goes and does what Jesus told him to do, and he gets healed. And interestingly, it's the most, it's the most beautiful witness testimony which we're going to get to next week he doesn't even really know who jesus is but he stands and he tells these people who are opposed to jesus what jesus actually did Um, this is really consistent right across the gospel of john this idea of being sent and uh, and look what look what shows up in uh, john 17 as you sent me into the world so I've sent them into the world. Now, what is a Christian? What would be an identity statement that we would make about a Christian, who a Christian is? There's lots of them, right? But here's one. You are a sent one. That's what you are. You're a sent one. Um, we are not people who feather our nest, right? We, we are not people who want a comfortable life. I'm not saying that we don't fall into this sometimes, but making identity statements about Christians, this is not, this is not us. We are not people who think we should be served. 
We are not people who curve in on ourselves. We are, we are sent ones. That's what we are. Um, and, and I want to say to you this morning is that if you don't see yourself as a sent one, you, misun- you completely misunderstand what's going on around you. There is, there is... You live in a contested space. It's, it's not ultimately about you just having a nice house and a nice car. If you have aligned yourself with Christ and you belong to him, I'm sorry, you're a sent one. <laughs> you're a sent one. That's what you are. And you need to think about it that way. You know, we, we are people who have been sent. Where was Jesus sent from? Heaven to earth. <laughs> and so like Jesus, you know, one of the things that sent people do, they move from comfort to discomfort. Who's up for that? Yeah, so didn't get too many amens on that one. What, what do we do? We move from safety to risk for the glory of God and for the good of people. That's, that's what we do. That's the movement. We're sent to tell others about Jesus. We're sent to serve. We're sent to people outside of ourselves. We're sent on mission. You may not have noticed, but in the weekly update, a standard weekly prayer point until we get one is, God, would you please raise up a church planner for this church so that we can plant a church? Jesus said that that's how you get gospel workers. Pray that the Lord of the harvest sends out harvesters into his harvest field. And I would encourage you all, let's all just pray that God raises up a church planner for us. Why do we want to do church planning? Because we're on mission. <laughs> right? That's, that's what we're here for. You know, we've, we've had probably six to eight months at the church here and we had a lot of changes at the start of the year and we moved into the building and we, our name changed and we've kind of been scrambling. It's like, right, everyone, we're sent. We are sent people and we need to live a life. We need to have a church. We need to have families that look like we're sent. You and I got a job to do. Um, and it isn't ultimately about us. And these are questions that I'm asking myself. They're questions that I'm asking um, about Restoration Church at the moment. Um, do you exhibit a sentness in the way that you live your life? Because that's who you are. Does, does this church exhibit a sentness in the way we do things? Do we? Do you have a keen sense of mission? And that the mission that God has you on and us is more important than your own comfort or your own preferences? Is there a sentness in the way that you do community or serve one another in the church? We have been sent to contest the darkness. So, here's uh, here's where I want to finish. Be a good torch. Be a good torch. And you probably go, how do you be a good torch? Well, it's a little bit like a a solar rechargeable torch, right? Which sounds like an oxymoron, but it's actually a thing. You can buy one, right? So you stick it outside in the sun in the day, and then you can use it at night, right? What, What does a solar rechargeable torch do to be a good torch well it gets in the presence of light right it gets energy from outside of itself and then when it goes dark it turns on 
So here's, this is a bit cheesy, right? So this is, this is a spoiler alert, right? You need to get charged up by Jesus so that you can burn really brightly for him. Because there is just darkness all over the place that needs a torch, right? And we, don't, we can't do it today. One of the things I've heard of churches doing before, which I love to do here, is to just get a big map of Toowoomba and Highfields and just put like a red pin everywhere where people are working during the day or where, where they hang out during the day. And what you would actually see is we've actually got a lot of torches across a lot of space in Toowoomba and Highfields, right? And it's exciting because there's lots of darkness that needs someone with a torch. How do, you, how do you get to be a bright torch? Well, you read scripture, you pray, you be part of community, you worship, you come to church. And you know what you do then? You get out and you can test the darkness. That's what you do. And you know, sometimes people see uh, church as the main thing when it comes to spirituality. And you know what I want to say to you? It's actually half time. That's what, the ch- that's what church is on Sunday morning. We are, we are having half time, right? And we've all been out on the field. We've all been out on the field in the last week. And it's like we get the gang in, right? And we just go, right, everyone, just remember what we're doing. All right, remember we've got that play there and we've got that play there and we should be doing that. We've got to be uh, taking that offense on there and, and there's some stuff pushing against us over here, so we need to look at that. All right, team, everyone puts their hands in the middle and we go, oh, like that. And then you go out. That's what, that's what church is, right? This is, this is how being sent works the main game is actually either side of Sundays that's what it is we're on a mission bigger than us a mission bigger than our family a mission bigger than our immediate surrounds and we better get on with it amen and I'm not saying that because we're not I'm sure that we are but let's maybe just more (laughs) is anyone with me like just just a bit more maybe a lot more for some of you and that's okay it's not too late to be a sent one. Find some darkness and uh, contest it. Push it back. Peel it back. Find some darkness and get a bit of Jesus in there. I want to leave you with this um, C.S. Lewis quote. This is how Lewis puts it. Enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I wonder if that gets excited. God, we... Um, uh, looks, looks can be deceiving. We look at um, the world around us, the... We think we're just going to the supermarket and buying some food and making sure life rolls well and comfortably. And it's so easy to just completely miss that there is um, there's a big, big, big story going on. And we uh, we just thank you for your mercy. We were in trouble and we couldn't get ourselves out. You got in the way and stopped us getting what we deserved. 
Thank you for your grace, your, your kindness to us, your forgiveness. And pray for anyone here today who uh, wants to change allegiance today from uh, darkness to light. And I see you'd stir in their heart to, um, to be sorry for uh, being on the, on the dark side and for enjoying it. Help them to see you today, see you clearly. Just to want you, to, uh, to love you, to know that you love them. I see you would forgive them for their, their rebellion to you, their turning from you. Make them new. For those of us who know you, we... Um, Thank you that, that you sent your son. And um, we, we hear your call. You send us. Amen. I, um, I became a Christian when I was 16. And um, when, uh, when my dad... We've become the crying church, right? So uh, I'm just feeling a bit of something just as I share this. But um, when my dad got a job in Sydney in the Prezi Church, I'd had um, I'd gone to state schools my whole life, and um, I got sick of uh, being the preacher's kid. And the kids knew about it. So Dad got a job in the uh, head office of the Prezi Church in Sydney. And um, do you know what I said? I said, uh, at school, and I said at three uni, my dad's just got an office job in the city. That's what he does, right? He's just got an office job. And um, do you know what that... Do you know what that was? It was like, switch off the torch. That's what it was. Go to school, switch it off. Go to uni for four years. As soon as I show up there, I go to church on Sunday. Go and help my mate down the Parramatta Mall. Talk to people about Jesus. But when you go to uni on Sunday, you just on Monday, you just switch it off. You switch the torch off. And we just leave it off and then... The end of the day, uh, in the right context, I'll flick it back on. And uh, if you're anything like me, if you've ever done that, uh, there's an invitation for you just to s- switch it on and just leave it on. <laughs> you could just do that, and that would be really good, right? And not just switch it on and off, depending on whatever situation you're in. 